This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. When interior designer Jana Rosenblatt had an 80-foot tree fall on her house, she saw the opportunity to create the customized home of her dreams. From Disaster to Dream Home provides you with the information and resources Jana wished she had during her rebuilding process. Now she's sharing with you the expertise of leading architects and home builders and the newest products and materials on the market. Here's your host, Jana Rosenblatt. Welcome back, home builders and remodelers. Today, we're going to tackle the challenging world of homeowners insurance and how it works when you have a major claim. It is truly a necessary evil for which I am personally grateful as I got to rebuild my home after a giant eucalyptus tree fell on it, although I remain traumatized by the process even several years later. As an interior designer, I have helped many clients determine the values of their losses through the years and have had no fear being the one to help work with their insurance companies. But this time it was me in the center of the traumatic event and I knew I was way too emotionally involved to see the forest through the trees. Just as we could not have faced our insurance negotiation on our own, I can't imagine talking about the process without the public adjuster we hired two days after the tree fell. Matt Goldstein, SPPA is my guest today. He is a licensed public adjuster with the Greenspan company, Adjusters International. When you hire a public adjuster, they represent you, not the insurance company. And unless you are an insurance expert, they can be the difference between a fully covered settlement and a confusing mess. Matt, the first question is, what does SPPA stand for? Uh, It stands for Senior Professional Public Adjuster. It's a designation given by the National Association of Public Insurance Adjusters uh, based on tenure and knowledge and passing of a couple of exams. Okay. And it's the highest, yeah. the high, it's, it, it, it's, it's the highest designation that a public adjuster can attain. Okay, great. And how long have you been in that part of your job, in that position? Uh, this is my 30th year uh, as a public adjuster. Wow, that's amazing. You must have started when you were 12. I was going to um, say 13, but yeah, right after my <laughs> um, How do you explain what the Greenspan company and you do? Um, normally, I tell people that we are an advocate for an insurance policyholder. Our, our position is to represent the policyholder only. We don't represent insurance companies. And we're out there to make sure that, you know, sometimes we like to say we level the playing field. We make sure that the adjuster for the insurance company and the insurance company in general is playing fair. There's a lot of things inside your insurance policy that you don't necessarily know about and aren't, won't necessarily uh, obtain as far as coverages without prior knowledge or, or intimate knowledge of an insurance policy. So that's what we do. We, we, we navigate that, that process for you and make sure that the policy works in your benefit. And that is exactly what I experienced in working with you. Uh, how did you get started in this challenging career? Uh, sort of by accident. I was, I was doing a, a different job and the president of Greenspan is a personal friend, sort of a, was at the time 
he's, he's retired now, um, kind of like my second father and he needed a, uh, someone to come in and learn the business. So I took a flyer for a year, said, I'll do it for a year and see what happens. And now 30 years later, I can't seem to leave. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, you're definitely good at it. I, I can't imagine doing what you do every day. It's, uh, it's challenging. Um, what kind of training prepared you for this kind of work? What did you do at the beginning? Um, there's really no formal training. Some, most of the people on, in our industry come from insurance company side. So they've been an adjuster on, for, for an insurance company. So they see that side of it. And then they come over and sort of switch teams, as we like to say. Um, I'm one of the few people who never worked for an insurance company. So the training is more of hands-on. You know, you sort of start in the, we'll call it the inventory department, which is where you actually, you know, get really dirty and count debris and, and, and figure out claims. But it's, it's while it's sort of a, a learning experience, you're also listening. You know, you go to every meeting, you follow the adjusters around, you ask questions, you learn how to put claims together, you sit in while they negotiate. So it's, it's sort of a trial by fire, and that's how you learn. Um, I was thrown into it a little quicker in that I started in 91 and then in 94, uh, the Northridge earthquake hit. And yeah, that's trial by just, fire? Yeah, well, yeah. We trial by earthquake. Yeah. Trial by earthquake, sure. You know, we needed more people. So I had already gone to Miami for Hurricane Andrew. L.A. had experienced the riots. And, and uh, the riots may have been after the earthquake. I don't even remember. It's been so many disasters. Um, but there were fires in Malibu. There were fires all over the place. So I had gotten a lot of hands-on experience. So I was ready to, you know, make that transition in 94 to being an adjuster. Yeah, now you mentioned something briefly in that description about the um, inventory and I just want to explain from my experience that um, that at, unless it's completely a total loss, very often there's a bunch of crap that's t- brought out of your house that's in horrible condition and that it's stored somewhere until somebody, you know, that like you and your adjuster and the insurance company adjuster stand there and decide whether or not it's something that can be repaired or, uh, or, dispo- or needs to be disposed of and then valued. Um, yeah, that's a whole nother process. I could, that could be another whole show. We dealt with several different insurance adjusters throughout our 14 month ordeal. We had one assigned from our insurance company. We had the hired gun the insurance company sent to check out the process. And we thankfully had you. What are the differences between each kind of adjuster? Well, depending upon the insurance company and depending upon the level of the claim, meaning the value of the claim, Sometimes it'll stay with, now let me, let me explain that differently. Some of the larger carriers have their own in-house adjusters. So they're going to have their own people to handle their claims on behalf of their company. Depending upon the size of the claim and the monetary value, it'll be a different level of adjuster with a different level of experience. Um, in your case, they assigned an in-house adjuster and I, I honestly don't recall the reason why. Maybe it was because we were involved, maybe because of the value of the claim that they did um, substitute the, the company adjuster for an independent adjuster who is, is just that. He works for his own company, but he represents different insurance companies and he you know, adjusts the claim on behalf of the insurance company. Have you ever considered working for an insurance company side? No. You like the, you like the side of the people? I'm sorry? You like the side of the people? I, I do. I like being an advocate for the policyholder and making sure that they're taken care of. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can't see myself working for an insurance company. Yeah, interesting. Um, so 
now from the first call, when the event happens, when should the potential client call for your services? Immediately. It's unfortunately, it's, it's not something that a lot of people know about unless you've had a loss before. So people don't know what we do. It's not exactly easy to pre-solicit uh, business. We can't go out and, and, you know, go door to door and say, hey, one day you might need me because your house may burn down or a tree may fall on your house in your situation. So uh, usually it's word of mouth. If someone's had an experience before, they tell you to call a public adjuster. Um, but it's imperative that we're involved from the outset because what gets done at the first couple of meetings or even the, the initial meeting with your insurance company can often dictate how the balance of the adjustment is going to go. And if an untrained policyholder says something or does something that doesn't benefit them, it's very difficult to unring that bell once it's done. Yeah. I can imagine. And, and we fortunately, um, I knew just enough. I really didn't have the first a total understanding of your services, but I did understand just enough to know that um, after one phone conversation with my insurance company, where they didn't understand nearly the magnitude of what had happened to my house with a really big tree, uh, that, that I needed to be more powerful than my own little self. Um, I know you've worked with your clients during some major events like the, Earth, the Northridge earthquakes and the Los Angeles riots and Hurricane Katrina. Um, can you tell us, oh, oh, and mudslides, I can't even imagine what that entails. Mudslides, hurricanes, tornadoes. If there's a natural disaster, I'm rooting for it on the Weather Channel, and then I've got my suitcase back. Oh, jeez. Uh, can you tell us how the process of working with the insurance companies may differ from one kind of event to another? from one kind of event to another, um, yeah. it sort of depends upon the event. I mean, there's some things, you know, for example, when, when I started with the Northridge earthquake, you would look at a, a building or a house and, and you couldn't necessarily tell that it was damaged. It wasn't until you had a structural engineer come out and maybe run a manometer, which is like a level to see if the house had fallen off of its foundation, or if you open up a wall to see, you know, oh, the framing's racking or, or it's falling apart. Whereas in a fire, it's pretty obvious, you know, what's, what's happened and what's damaged. Same in your situation. I mean, a tree fell on the house, so you could, you could see that damage. Uh, it did take a little extra because that's, um, you know, you have to have an engineer come in and take a look at the structural integrity of the house and see if it's moved off of the foundation or see how, uh, you know, the, the impact has affected the, the, the overall, the framing and the overall structural integrity. Yeah, now um, I was thinking about that this morning as I was getting ready to talk to you. Remind me, you actually brought in the the engineer. He was your yes, we did bring in a yes, we did bring in a structural engineer. That's right. Which actually was the difference between um, you know I knew because I know my house what that even the countertops in the kitchen or which are on the other end of the house were were away from the wall. They had never been like that before. But ex but it really took the structural engineer to see, you know, to explain, I guess, also to the insurance company, what the extent of the damage was, which is where, you know, where the settlement then can be negotiated properly. Um, and so, and in the, in terms of the, um, the kind of event that it is, how do the needs of your, of your clients differ from, you know, from one event to another? Well, I mean, the type of event doesn't necessarily dictate that. Maybe it's the, it's the type of a claim. You know, if it's a residential claim, you've got a homeowner who's now displaced and they need to go find a temporary living space. They need to get, you know, new clothes. They need to get new essentials that they live with on a daily basis. I mean, you tend to forget 
when you're not at home that all of a sudden, you know, you don't have access to your home, you don't have access to your clothing, your medications, your computers, all sorts of, 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 of things that sort of, you know, run your daily life that you're so used to having. Whereas if it's a commercial building, you know, an uh, industrial building, then it's, you know, getting the equipment back up and running and finding, uh, you know, maybe a temporary location and is the payroll covered and, and how are we going to get new, new supplies or new products and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, of course, there's a, a commercial application, you know, for properties that are, are well beyond what we experienced in our home. Um, then when, an ins- when a person is uh, purchasing their policy and, and looking for their an insurance company, are there any things specifically we should look for? What, you know, what are the things that are going to help us know the insurance company is going to be there when it counts? Um, it's an interesting question. You know, every, every, every consumer has a different need. And I'll tell you that most consumers look at the price like anything else. You know, you go to buy a car, you look at the price. You go to an insurance company and, and you know, you get five or six different quotes and people tend to go for the cheapest one. Unfortunately, more often than not, the cheapest carrier is the least effective carrier. Um, to your concern, you know, I, I always suggest to people that at the very least they do a search at the Department of Insurance, make sure that the carrier is an admitted carrier, which means that uh, we're in California. So the state of California license more or less that company to practice and to sell uh, insurance in the state of California. And if they are, then there's certain laws that they have to uh, abide by. There's, there's claims practices that are set in, in, into law in the state of California that they had to have to adhere to. And there's also some funding set up if for some reason that carrier were to dissolve in the middle of a claim, there's, there's some state funding that's available to cover their losses. Whereas you have non-admitted carriers as well, which normally homeowners don't Uh, Very, very rarely are you going to see a homeowner with a non-admitted carrier unless it's maybe a hillside or or in a fire zone or or someone who's had multiple losses. And those carriers are just a little bit more difficult to deal with and that you don't have, um, they they don't follow the same rules. They're allowed to sell and they're allowed to insure things in the state of California, but they don't fall under the California laws. So they can take as long as they want to pay. They can not pay. They can just, they make their own rules. And that's called a non-admitted carrier? Yeah, non-admitted carrier. And so it sounds like that means it's in an exceptional uh, cases where the the property might be uninsurable for many reasons. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're you're, you're familiar with the term assigned risk for auto insurance in California. I mean, so it's similar to that. There are some, there's, there's one carrier in California, it's called California Fair Plan, which is sort of the assigned risk of insurance. You know, if you live up on Mulholland, you know, in a fire zone, for example, in, in, in Hollywood, and you've got a, you know, multi-million dollar home, you may not be able to get traditional insurance through a regular carrier. Um, you can go through California Fair Plan. You can go to a non-admitted carrier. And it's also a price thing. You could possibly get, you know, a, a, a normal admitted carrier to, to insure you, but it may be, you know, 10 times the price of, of someone else. Yeah, and I think that's also the instance in... Um in the, some of the older homes that are, are in um, parts of Los Angeles that are, um, are beyond the ability to be insured until they're brought up to code. And, uh, and so you can kind of go to that kind of um, higher price, but at least it's something that absorbs some of the risk. Um, exactly. 
what are the incidents where you've witnessed, witnessed the most devastating kinds of losses? What really shakes people up? Uh, I mean, I would, I would say something that, that's, uh, you know, affects a home, whether it's a fire or a tornado or a hurricane or something, but someone loses a home. I mean, that's their, their personal space and that personal space is now disrupted. Um, a lot of times I will, I'll, I'll compare it to, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like a death. I mean, the people are in mourning because they've spent their entire lives in this home or, you know, a considerable amount of time and they've put time and money and effort into, into making it what they want. And then all of a sudden it's taken from them. Yeah. So that's usually the most difficult and the most emotional. Um, I mean, commercial businesses, depending upon the business, depending upon what it is, you know, that too is emotional and, and, and devastating. And sometimes it's just like, okay, well, that's one out of 10 businesses I own. So no big deal. You'll get that up and running and I can still make money someplace else. Well, that's a nice idea. Um, is the process of working toward a settlement different when an entire region is affected, like in a mudslide or, or a fire area um, versus an, an isolated incident like ours? Yes. When you get into a disaster situation, you get an influx of adjusters from all over the country who work or are in and out relatively quickly and depending upon your loss and depending on the size of your loss, normally, you know, like in a hurricane situation, the first wave of adjusters who comes in really for PR purposes are going to want to pay out as quickly as they can. They put the minimal claim together, especially if the home or the commercial business is devastated and it's blown away, then they'll put together the minimum that they can and then they'll pay out policy limits. And then after the first couple of weeks, when, you know, the news media has died down or something like that. Then the next wave comes in and they start doing a more traditional adjustment with putting together comprehensive estimates, putting together inventories. Um, and, and, and that sort of takes over. And then the longer people wait to settle a claim, which I'm not encouraging, you know, if you want to get your money right away, great. If you want to get what you're entitled to, you may have to wait a little bit longer. And then it's more, it's a more traditional adjustment process. And you came to our, uh, and went from our house several times throughout the process of inspections. We were lucky that you were local. Um, are you always able to be on site with your clients? I, yeah, normally, you know, I, I, I'm licensed in about 25 different states, but if I have to travel, you know, I'll, I'll stay as long as I need to in order to make sure that the claim is being adjusted properly, or I'll make several trips. You know, for Hurricane Katrina, I think I lived in, in, in Louisiana for close to 10 months, almost a year back and forth. Same thing with some of the hurricanes in Texas and Houston. We spent a considerable amount of time down there to uh, adjust claims. Okay. And uh, the next thing I kind of want to go into is the process of what happens and, and how everything is negotiated. And so I, I actually spent some time on your um, website. I strongly suggest prior to needing your services, people check the homeowner section of the Greenspan Company's website, which maps out the process that you helped us with. Uh, Matt, if you could speak to each of these steps and fill me in on anything I'm missing in the process. Um, sure. The first thing on the list is, um, is life and safety issues. Having, after having lived there a couple of days, you arranged for an engineer to determine the safety of our house, which was determined unsafe for us to stay in. When, is it, when it's not a total loss, are there some um, safety issues that you are, what are some of the safety issues that your clients are faced with? 
Well, I mean, when you're dealing with a residence and there's a fire or there's, in your instance, you know, or no, we'll say an earthquake or a tree going into it, the house isn't generally safe. It's not in a condition that anyone wants to live in. You're going to, if it's a fire, you know, you've now, you've got soot and smoke that, that's floating around. You could have asbestos or lead that's now become friable and is airborne and you could be ingesting that. So, you know, the best thing to do is for the homeowner to get out of the house and get into someplace safe. And you had um, a separate, there was a separate company that you brought in to help us um, figure out where, uh, what we could move into, what to look for, and that handled, I think the payments went through them from the insurance company. Is, is that, was that a separate company from Greenspan? Yes, there are, there, there are outside vendors who we utilize for housing purposes. They'll go out and they'll determine the fair rental value of the home that you lived in and They'll take that figure and then they'll search the general area based upon your needs and parameters, and they'll find you a, a temporary residence for you to move into. Oftentimes, they'll work with the insurance company and they'll take care of the rent, and the insurance company will reimburse them. This is out of the insurance coverage that you have, but it keeps you from having to come up with money that you may or may not have, or just it's, it's, it's more peace of mind that you have someone else dealing with it and you can focus on other things and not worrying about, you know, yeah. paying rent yeah. and your mortgage and everything else that you need to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it adding anything else to our process at the time, this would have been somewhat more overwhelming. So yeah, it was a great service and it really helped a lot. Um, the next category is the mitigation of damages. Our insurance company fully secured the house and tarped our roof uh, prior to the heavy rains. It was, we actually had a rainy season that year. Um, what is the policy holder's responsibility in mitigating damages? And what's the insurance company's responsibility? The insurance company really doesn't have a responsibility per se. I mean, the policy states that it's the insured, the insured's uh, responsibility to, to protect their home and mitigate their dam mitigate from any future damages. So, you know, had you contacted your insurance company and they not referred you to a contractor or someone, it would have been your responsibility to go find someone to come out and board up the property and secure the property and put a tarp on it. Um, you know, when we get involved, if that work hasn't been done, we can certainly refer a, a policyholder to several contractors that we work with um, that, that, that do just that. So there it's are very a lot much, it's very, I'm sorry, it's very, it's very much... The, the policy is very clear that it's, it's the policyholder's responsibility to, to, and we'll use the term, mitigate their damages. They're the ones who are responsible for that. Uh, you know, if you just leave the building wide open and people come in and steal things that weren't damaged from the incident, then that may not be covered because you didn't do anything to protect yourself and protect uh, your property. Uh-huh. Um, I see. So, so the insurance company did do some valuable things but it was ultimately would have been our responsibility to do them had they not. Yes, not every insurance company will refer you to someone. I mean, when you report a claim, especially a homeowner, depending upon the day of the week, depending upon the time of the day, depending on the carrier, you're gonna to talk to someone at an 800 number who's simply filling in an online form. They have some resources at, at hand for them that they can refer you to. Otherwise, they're just simply gonna say, okay, great. You know, your claim number is one, two, three, four, five, and you'll hear from an adjuster in 24 to 48 hours. And that's all they tell you. All right. So there was some good, uh, you know, advantage to our company. They did, they did that well. Um, what, and so the next category of, um, of consideration is to establish a, prim a primary recovery plan. What does the primary recover recovery plan entail? 
Well, when we get involved in a claim, we come out, we assess the damage and see what has happened and, and how best to put a claim together, whether that's, you know, a structural engineer, whether it's, a, you know, you're always going to have a licensed general contractor who's going to come out and write an estimate of repairs. If, if, if it's structural damage, then yes, we would have an engineer come in and take a look at that and draw repair plans. You need to have someone come in and inventory the personal property, or if it's all destroyed, help work with the business owner or the homeowner to put together a comprehensive list of what was damaged, destroyed. So that portion of the claim can be, uh, can be submitted as well. What are the ranges of time that the restoration process can take in different kinds of events? It simply depends upon the, t the type of the loss. Um, you know, right now, things are taking longer with COVID because the building departments aren't fully staffed and everything's online. So some situations where plan check and permitting used to take 30 days, now takes 90 days. Um, I had a situation in, in, in Hemet, California recently where they only work four days a week. And if you turn in the plans, they quarantine the plans for three months, three days, excuse oh. me. And then they hand it off to the next person who then quarantines the plans for three days before they even look at it. Yeah. So you're two weeks in before somebody even opens up the permit request and the plans. And then when they're done and they review it and they send it back to the city, the city sits on it again for another three days, Yeah. which, you know, seems fruitless because, you know, COVID's not traveling on, on this, on these plans, but this is just the way they're doing things. So something in this instance that should have taken about 60 days took six months. Yeah. And so we were covered for six to eight months um, of um, housing in our policy, I guess, or, or what, I don't know what the criteria is, but um, which you negotiated to 12 months and then we needed 14. And in the end, we paid for the last two months out of pocket to be able to accomplish additional things that we needed to. Um, so in that case, are you constantly negotiating for more you know, safe housing for people? Well, the way it works, most policies are going to be written, homeowners policies are going to be written in two different ways. One, you're either going to have actual loss sustained, which is the whatever your, your housing and your, and your living expense loss is, um, for a period of time set forth in the policy. A standard policy is 12 months. Uh, California has passed laws that if you have a loss as a result of a, a disaster, a wildfire, for example, that that 12 months instantly becomes 24 months. Um, and, and, and I should say that it's, it's up to that amount of time. It's for the shortest amount of time it takes to fix your house up to that amount of time. Uh, there are all, also policies that have a stated dollar limit. And that negates the time frame. So you could go necessarily beyond the 12 months. But when you get to that stated limit, there is no more funding available to you. Even if you're in a disaster, they're not going to extend it beyond the dollar amount. So, so in your situation, I think yeah. that they initially assessed that it should have taken eight months to repair the house when we got close to that time and we saw that it wasn't going to happen due to settlement issues or permitting issues or payment issues. We were able to negotiate that and extend that to, and, and, and forgive me, I don't recall whether we stopped at 10 months or whether they agreed to pay the full 12 yeah, months. Yeah, we went up to four, we went up to 12 months. Yeah. Which was but then it took for reason, you know, it may have yeah. taken longer than the 12 months and then unfortunately um, you know, you're on your own for the, for the last two months. Sometimes yeah. we can get, depending upon the reason why it took to the 12 months, some insurance companies are sympathetic to that. Some are not. Yeah, I, I'm sure it completely varies. Um, and 
and between those two kinds of accounts, do you, do you get the sense that anyone ever really has an idea of how they would be covered if they had to leave their house? Uh, most people don't read their insurance policy. Most people, again, you know, they look at the bottom line, they pay the policy, they put it in a drawer and they don't, they never need it. So when it does come up and they do have a loss, you know, that's when they either understand what they're doing or, or what they purchased, or they're asking questions of people as to what they're, what they're looking at. So ultimately, would it be better? Do you do better if it's an actual where you have that 12 to 24 months, or is it better with a stated limit, which is easier to negotiate up from if you need to? Well, I mean, again, when you're looking at an actual loss sustained, I mean, you're pretty well limited to 12 months unless you're in a disaster. Uh, and then the policy doubles to 24 months, whereas the limit you know, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar living expense limit, and even if you're in a disaster, that one hundred doesn't become two hundred. That one hundred stays the same, and when you exceed that limit, you're done. So, prefer you a homeowner should prefer to have an actual loss sustained policy because that has an unlimited amount. If you have a stated limit and you're going to be out of the house for an extended period of time, you still have to start budgeting. You know, okay, I've got enough to spend five thousand dollars a month, and and can I? reestablish the quality of life that I had before for $5,000 a month. Some people can, some people can't. So with an actual loss sustained policy, you know, you're pretty well set for the entire year and you shouldn't yeah. be going out of pocket. Yeah. Um, the total rebuilds that my interior design firm just uh, completed are, are just completing are from the Woolsey fires in November of 2018, which is two and a half years ago. Uh, many properties from that event have not even broken ground. The two that, um, one of mine got back into the house exactly at the two-year mark, and the other one um, is just getting at the two-and-a-half-year mark. Um, it can take years to design and permit a new home. How is the out-of-your-home timeline handled when it's a total loss like that, and especially when it's a whole area of, um, of need? Well, that's why people, you know, complain to the state and, and, and the law was changed in a disaster to knock it from 12 months to 24 months. Admittedly, there are a lot of people who can't get their house built in that amount of time, depending upon the devastation, depending upon the new codes. I mean, I, I handled a lot of claims from uh, the, the mudslides up in Santa Barbara and in Montecito, where people's homes were just wiped away. And they were stuck for a good eight, nine months, not knowing if they were even going to be allowed to rebuild because the city had to do all these assessments and they had to figure out where the floodplain was and what sort of foundations and support you were going to need. And that, you know, bogged down the process. And again, they were allowed 24 months of living expenses, but some people like your examples never even broke ground before that expired. Yeah. I have to say that, I, I, I understand the dev devastation of fire because I'm working with people who literally left their homes with what they had on and what was in their cars. And the, as you work with them over the course of the year, you understand that. But the mudslide thing, I, I just feel like that has got to be complete devastation in such a messy, messy way. Yeah, it, it's different in that, you know, that wasn't expected. I mean, you know a fire yeah. is coming. You're told, hey, get out. That mudslide in Montecito is something I've never dealt with before. It's a one-of-a-kind sort of event. And, uh -huh. you know, 
one second it's not happening and the next second it's happening and you have no time to prepare for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that the loss is unbelievably devastating. Um, yes. Matt, I feel like we've just laid the groundwork in understanding of what a public adjuster can do to help a client with a major insurance property claim. Thank you for agreeing to come back next week to continue the conversation about negotiating the settlement and the timeline of your claim with the insurance company. As always, you can tune in to each episode on your phone or computer through our website from disastertodreamhome.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. Each week, we bring you time-tested practices and the latest trends through conversations with top professionals in the building industry. You can find other episodes of From Disaster to Dream Home at EWNPodcastNetwork.com, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and most other major podcast streaming services. Need design help? You can contact us or find out more about our guests at From Disaster to Dream Home. Until next time, let us guide and inspire you as you create the home of your dreams. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers, eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast.